Hi everyone, Naima here. As you've probably noticed, I've been offline for a little while. Episode 3, Zulfi's story, has been a complicated and difficult process to navigate, and I want to make sure I get part 2 right before I bring it to you. In any case, it needs a little more time in the oven, so, while I sort it out, we have been working on a mini-series on Islam and, yes, Donald Trump's Muslim ban. For the next few weeks, we're going to be introducing you to third culture folks from some of the seven banned countries. But to start off, I thought I would tell you a little of my journey with Islam. Here goes. That sound used to give me nightmares. For those of you who don't recognize it, it's the call to prayer, or adhan. Its lilting tones are sung by a muezzin and broadcast from a mosque five times a day to remind Muslims that it's time to pray. It used to ring out across the compound where I lived as a child in Bobojulaso in Burkina Faso. The call at dawn would wake me up just as the sun was wiping away the hot night. And as I fell back asleep, it used to trigger a recurring nightmare of mine. Masked bandits would sneak into the house, kidnap my parents and stuff them into a set of Russian dolls and I would never see them again. You know that weird half state you can sometimes drop into between sleeping and waking where reality blurs, yeah. And of course, my dreams had nothing to do with the call to prayer, but for a long time, hearing the insistent tones of the muezzin launched across the city used to remind me of that nightmare and unsettle me. It gave me a feeling of real unease. And I used to feel really guilty about that, like I was being somehow blasphemous. A sound that for many signals a time to turn to God just made me think of Russian dolls and kidnapping bandits. And of course, that's changed now. I can recognize the beauty of the song, and it reminds me more of lazy afternoons in my grandmother's compound than of my nightmares. But it always reminds me of how tricky memory is. Memories get linked so easily to sounds, images, smells, and those things can bring us right back to a feeling in a way that not much else can. I think it's fair to say that since 9-11, Islamophobia has been on the rise. Suddenly, Islam went from being another innocuous religion to being on trial in front of the world. Images of those smoking towers are imprinted on people's memories, and it now seems impossible to unlink Islam from narratives of atrocities committed around the world by a small faction of lunatics. And I think that because of this, just like the call to prayer got linked to my nightmare, Islam has gotten linked to terrorism and fear. I sometimes imagine that the feeling of cold unease I used to get when listening to the call is perhaps what some people feel when a woman in hijab sits next to them on the bus or a brown man with a beard gets onto their flight. Perhaps it isn't intentional, but scary images of men in turbans with Kalashnikovs spring to mind. Thoughts of innocent bodies littering the streets in the wake of an attack. 
Or perhaps it's those smoking towers which float through the subconscious. I'm going to stop pretending it's just other people. I've caught myself in a queue at the airport staring longer at that bearded man. I was recently on a train platform and a group of women in burkas got onto the same carriage as me and I paused wondering whether to get into the same compartment. And I'm not proud to admit this. In fact, it makes me quite ashamed and I'm vigilant with myself to prevent these knee-jerk reactions from causing me to treat anyone with any less respect or dignity. But the collective memory of fear has created this visceral reaction. Not something you can explain, but something that you feel. A reaction to not only acts of terror, but to any visible marker of a Muslim identity. And what's terrifying is how this feeling, this fight-or-flight reaction, has spiralled out of people's subconscious and into common political discourse. In the case of Islam, you're welcome to come here and, and to have your children here. But if you're coming to take us over, you're not welcome. We need a little bit more backbone, do we not? I really believe that it's five minutes to twelve when it comes to the uh, danger of the Islamization of our continent, of Europe, indeed of the West. Do you think Islam is at war with the West? I think Islam hates us. There's something, there's something there that there's a tremendous hatred there. There's a tremendous hatred. We have to get to the bottom of it. From Nigel Farage in the UK to Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and Donald Trump in the US, it's become acceptable politics to preach fear of a religion. And well, surprisingly, there is one thing that Trump and I agree on. I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to get to the bottom of this tremendous hatred of Islam. I'm Naeem Sakande, and this is Third Culture. So, as you might have realized by now, I am Muslim-ish. Muslim-me. Muslim-like? I'm Muslim, but my relationship with Islam, as it is for many, is complicated. The whole of my dad's side of my family in Burkina Faso is Muslim, and on my mom's side we are Christian-y atheist. And despite being raised with a Muslim father, religion was never a big feature in my upbringing. We never went to mosque, I never wore hijab, we never really talked about religion, perhaps because my mom is a militant atheist. But we also never had alcohol or pork in the house, and it never occurred to me that this was for a reason until much later. Slowly, as I grew up, Islam emerged out of the fog for me. I remember when my dad explained Ramadan, the month where Muslims fast between sunrise and sunset. And I loved the idea of a religious practice that was about focusing on the experience of those less fortunate than yourself. And you spent a whole month actively trying to be a more generous person. I began to fast on a few days a week to see if I could do it, and I remember calling my dad from school at lunchtime so he could distract me from the tempting smells. But Islam was rarely linked to belief for me. It felt more like a sort of cultural Islam, where I don't really know what I believe, but I live more or less like a Muslim. In my religious studies class at school in the UK, I remember the day we looked at arguments for and against a belief in God, and I found this beautiful label, agnostic, basically not quite sure yet, and I thought, yep, that's me. 
And that summer, while on holiday in Burkina, I remember approaching my cousin and asking her how she knew that God exists. And she looked at me with utter incomprehension, like I'd questioned if the sky was blue. It was something she'd never asked of herself because God's existence was fact. And it occurred to me that had my family never left Burkina, I might well think the same. After all, my uncle is an imam and my grandmother is a haji, the term given to someone who's been on pilgrimage to Mecca. That doesn't leave too much room for doubt. But it was when I was 18 and I moved to the USA for university that my Muslim identity really came into focus. I remember constantly surprising people when I mentioned that I was Muslim. People would say things like, how can you be a Muslim and not wear hijab? And that always baffled me. I mean, Jews were allowed to be Jewish, even though they didn't keep kosher, and Christians could remain Christians without attending church every Sunday. But somehow there was only one dominant narrative of what Islam was, and therefore who Muslims were. Muslims cover themselves, pray five times a day, don't eat pork, don't drink, and sometimes more dangerously, they oppress women, and they might be terrorists. And people around me didn't seem to have that stereotype challenged very often. And it all came to a head in my second year. According to the AP, the NYPD monitored student websites run by the Muslim Student Association on the Yale campus. The MSAs, as they're known, were being targeted. And Yale was not alone. It seems the NYPD was also doing surveillance on Muslim student groups in more than a dozen other local colleges. As the scandal unfolded, more details emerged. The NYPD had not only been monitoring websites run by Muslim Students Associations up and down the East Coast, they had allegedly been keeping files on all members, and in one case had sent an undercover officer to stalk a white water rafting retreat organized by Muslim students. This was the first time Islam felt personal to me. That story rocked me to my core. I'd never actually joined the Muslim Students Association, but I'd considered it and often attended events. They organized an annual Eid dinner on campus for the entire student body. They organized iftar meals to break fast during Ramadan. They held events and discussions. It was an innocuous student group where members were bonded by the peaceful practice of a religion. That they, that we could be profiled in this way, I hated. And I felt personally attacked. This aspect of my identity that felt largely dormant to me was suddenly something that made me dangerous, that made law enforcement need to keep tabs on me, that made me a threat to the USA. And I can't quite describe the feeling of powerlessness and frustration it built in me. I remember speaking to a friend about it, expressing my outrage and disappointment, and this friend turned to me and said, but it makes total sense. Muslims are more of a threat to national security than anyone else. Why wouldn't we monitor them? And again, this rage built inside me. How dare he call me a threat? How dare he insinuate that he had any more to fear from me because of my religion than anyone else? I felt like I wasn't being seen. I wanted to wave in his face. Can't you see me, your friend? The same one as ever, not the dangerous Muslim. It was as if this label got slapped onto my forehead and hid me completely from sight. That night was the first time I seriously contemplated wearing hijab. 
I felt as if I desperately wanted a visual marker that would make this aspect of my identity seen. I wanted to confront people with me and say, see, it's still me and I'm Muslim and I'm still not a threat to you. I wanted to clasp this aspect of my identity even tighter because it felt under attack. I never did wear hijab. I have personal views about covering that I found too difficult to surmount for what would ultimately have just been a political statement. But from that point on, I made it a point to tell people that I am Muslim. Islam has become welded to my identity in a way that my upbringing never caused it to be. So here I am, Naima, Muslim. As most of you will have heard, Donald Trump has been busy implementing a series of immigration reforms in the US that disproportionately affect those from seven majority Muslim countries. On January 27th, he signed an executive order that banned entry for 90 days of citizens from Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Stand up, fight back! That ban was blocked in courts, but on March 6th, Trump unveiled a new ban, this time excluding Iraq from the list and blocking all refugees for another 120 days. That ban was blocked in court again on March 15th by a district court judge for Hawaii, and now the ruling's been extended indefinitely. But the battle rages on. One thing is clear, there is a war going on, one for hearts and minds. And I often hear people talk about radicalization as if it's this incomprehensible thing, as if it's so hard to understand why someone might hold on to an identity so hard that they feel the need to defend it at all costs, from all threats. But that is the danger of painting everyone with a single brush. Squashing all Muslims into one box leaves lasting damage. That rage and powerlessness and frustration and invisibility that I felt in 2012 when the NYPD story broke felt like an enormous internal burden to bear. And what people from the seven banned countries feel to be at the eye of a storm whose purpose is to unilaterally stop them from entering the USA must dwarf that. And so the next few episodes will form a sort of mini-series. I'm going to introduce you to third culture people who in some way or another are from the seven banned countries and I hope telling you their stories will begin to do the work of giving us all a few more experiences to fight the links we carry between Islam and danger. I don't want to catch myself second-guessing strangers on a train. I don't want to stare mistrustingly at bearded men at the airport. But that takes work. So let's get to it. What's travail. Their Culture is produced by me, Naima Sakande, and by Martha Snow. Becky Aston is our web developer and Jackie Lee is our designer. 
special thanks to Ned Downey for his help this episode. When my recording of the Muslim ban protest I went to in London got accidentally deleted, he came through with the goods. Ned, you rule. Make sure you check out our website at thirdculturepodcast.org. And if you like the show, tell somebody. Or subscribe to us on iTunes and write a review. Or follow us on Twitter at thirdculturepod and Instagram at thirdculturepodcast. How are you feeling about the Muslim ban? Do you have an interesting relationship with Islam yourself? I want to hear it. Shoot me an email at thirdculturepodcast at gmail.com. Until then, stay you.